Well, good morning to you all. Great to see you here this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. I know we've got some folks who are tuning in online, so welcome to you as well. Um, back in October of 1938, that evening, something really unusual happened here in America. Uh, an actor, a young actor at the time by the name of Orson Welles, uh, he decided that he was going to take the famous novel by H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, and he was going to turn it into, adapt it into a play that would be spoken over the, uh, the greatest medium at the time for entertainment, that was the radio. So they created a, 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 an acted out version of this book, War of the Worlds, and uh, it played on the evening of October the 30th, 1938. And little did he know it would have a catastrophic effect across the United States. The next morning, Halloween 1938, everyone woke up to news headlines like this because the nation had gone crazy. They were listening to this adaptation of aliens invading Earth, and it was so realistic that they believed they'd tuned into a news broadcast of a live playing out of what was happening in New York at the time. People were calling the police. The National Guard were calling, asking where they should report to prepare for the invasion. It was that real. It was funny because as I was learning more about this particular event this week, one of the things that they believe caused such um, a part of the problem is that at the beginning of the broadcast, they'd said, listen, this isn't true. This isn't real. This is a play that we are acting out on the radio. But on the other channel, there was a very popular show. It was um, Edgar Bergen and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist, which I think is bizarre that he was very popular on the radio for his ventriloquist act. Like people listening in thinking, it's amazing. I can't even hear his lips move. It's crazy. <laughs> so he was so popular that when his show came to an end at 8.12, people just switched the channel and arrived on the War of the Worlds 12 minutes in. So they listened to what they thought was a real thing. It was completely ridiculous. Aliens were not invading the world, but people fell for what we think is a crazy lie, something that isn't true at all. And I think you and me, we'd probably say, well, had I been around, I would have known that wasn't true. I never would have fell for it. But I think still to this day, we fall for some lies that aren't true, but they seem so believable. And that's why we're going to speak over the next few weeks um, on a series that I've called Live No Lies. Live No Lies. Because we're going to discover that the devil, this is his number one weapon in his arsenal, is to lie to us, to steal truth from us, to cause us to believe things that aren't true, that, that really are bizarre and far-fetched. But like the listeners of that radio show, they just sound so real. And we get caught up in lies. Jesus identified the devil for who he was very clearly. He was talking to some religious leaders at the time. He was actually kind of chewing them out a little bit. And in John 8, 44, he says this, You, the religious leaders, you're the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do evil things, the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. 
Jesus is calling out the devil. He's naming him for who he is, and that is the father of lies. There's an author by the name of John Mark Comer. He wrote a book uh, called Live No Lies. And in that book, he, he summarizes the devil's strategy in one sentence. He says this, the devil promotes deceitful ideas, so he promotes lies, deceitful ideas, that play to disordered desires. So we have these desires within us that, that don't line up with the truth of Scripture, that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. So in the world in which we live, these lies are easy to believe to be true because society buys into them. The devil promotes deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Jesus, on the other hand, he identifies himself as the complete opposite. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So in this series, we're gonna try and expose the, the lies the devil tries to deceive us with. And not just that, we're then gonna look at what the truth is, what the truth really is. And I believe you're gonna experience the truth setting you free in some areas of your life. That's my goal over the next few weeks as we determine to live no lies. So this morning, we're gonna start out with this, this first, I think, kind of a, a tricky little piece of deception, a lie that the devil uses. We're gonna identify it, we're gonna call it out, and then we're gonna look at the truth that comes from Jesus. In order to kind of set up what I wanna talk about this morning, I wanna introduce you to Michaela Schifrin. Michaela Schifrin. She was born in Vail, Colorado. She's the most decorated American alpine skier in all of history. She's incredible. At two, in 2014, she was only 18 years old. She was the youngest Olympic slalom um, winner, gold medal champion in history. She's got two Olympic gold medals. And she's actually the first and only skier, both in the men and women's races, um, to ever win all six Alpine World Cup disciplines. She is unmatched in her sport, which is why last year, going into the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, she was the favorite to win a gold medal for America. And then this happens in the first of her three runs. It's key for Michaela to get a good rhythm right out of the start gate here. That's when you can really see if she's attacking normally right out of the first couple of gates. And Ted, I know you like Michaela's chances even more when it's bright sunshine and the snow is what we have right here. Yeah, when she can see, oh, she's already having trouble. Whoa, oh, out, oh, she goes. Same problem as Bacino. Unbelievable Schifrin, who is one of the most consistent and mistake-free skiers that we've ever seen goes down on her hip and out in her first run here in Beijing. So a favorites to win the giant slalom and goes down in her first of three runs. You could hear the commentators. I mean, they were so shocked because she's such a good skier, they couldn't believe it. Which is why they were so shocked in run two when it happened again. And then in her third chance, it happened again. All three times she fell. 
in the previous four years, she'd only fallen three times altogether in her entire skiing career. And in just one week at the Olympics, she matched that. She was out of the event. The favorite for the um, Olympic gold medal was out of the event. In a press conference afterwards, she was just in a state of shock as they were interviewing her. And she said simply this, that's disappointing for me. It's disappointing for my whole team, for the coaches, for everybody. Right now, I just feel like a joke. Now, I'm guessing that most of us here will never face the kind of pressure that she faced to perform at an Olympic level. But I think we do still face pressure in our lives to perform. I think most of us have maybe found ourselves as a result in situations where we can relate to that feeling that right now, I just feel like a joke. Have you ever had one of those moments when you feel like you didn't measure up when you know you should have done better? You see, the problem is it seems like from the moment we enter this world, there is this pressure to perform, this pressure to excel, this pressure to do well. I mean, think about it. Do you remember that very first visit to the doctor? You've just had your baby. You take him or her to the very first visit. They they get their checkup and the doctor comes back and says, uh, yes, he or she is in the 85th percentile. You don't know what that means, but you're like, yeah, 85th, (laughs) that's good. (laughs) You're walking out, looking at other babies, thinking, yeah, I bet you're just like 50 or 60, 85th right here. I've got a super baby. (laughs) When my kids were getting ready for preschool, I can remember at the time freaking out. I want to be my kid. I want my kids to be the one preschool who can already count the dots that they're sticking on the paper. Not the kid who's eating the dots that they should be sticking (laughs) on the paper. That's, that's the pressure for him or her to perform. When you get to high school, it's about your GPA, your ACT, your SAT. What college is gonna accept you? Later in life, it's your marital status, your career choice, your income level, the, the title that's on your business card. As you get further into life, it's have I, have I performed enough? Have I done well enough for retirement? Do I have enough to sustain me once I retire? Over and over again, it comes down to perform, perform, perform. We feel good about ourselves when we perform, but we feel like a joke when we don't. And the problem is that somewhere along the way, many of us have brought into the lie I wanna look at this morning, and that is the performance lie. The performance lie says, I am what I do. I am what I do, my my identity, my self-worth, my value, it's all wrapped up in what I do. And too often, this is where we find or seek our value, and the devil loves this lie, because he knows it's impossible to ever outperform the performance lie. And when we don't, we feel like a joke. There's an author by the name of Peter Scazzaro, he wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to us, our relationship with God and ultimately to others. What we're gonna learn over the next three weeks is that the devil himself, he he didn't try to just sell lies to us. Even Jesus 
was attacked by the devil in the area of these lies. And we're going to look at the lies, the temptations that the devil um, put upon Jesus over these next three weeks. We're going to look at one this morning. And then we're going to see how Jesus responded. And hopefully we will be able to respond the same way and not fall for the lies of the devil, but discover the truth that can only be found in Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time, and he became hungry. So just to kind of explain where where we find ourselves reading this short passage here. Jesus uh, is probably about 30 years old at this point. There's not a lot written about him at this time in the New Testament other than the story of his birth. And then suddenly he appears on the scene and and the majority of the the books that are written about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, take place from this point onwards. They talk about his miracles, his teaching, all the wonderful things he did. But before he does any of these, we learn in this passage that he goes off alone and spends some time in prayer and fasting because he wants to prepare for the great mission that he's about to embark upon. I think the devil knew how important this mission was going to be. So he decided to really try and take Jesus out before he even got started. And if you're familiar with this story, the temptation is sometimes to think, well, well, yes, I, I remember that story of how Jesus was tempted by the devil, but he was Jesus. And he's like a superhero. He's like one of the Avengers. It was easy for him to deflect the temptations, the lies of the devil. But the reality is, while Jesus was um, God himself, I believe he was God in the flesh. He was a human being. And I think these temptations were as real to him as they are to you and me. And here's a verse that kind of supports that belief in Hebrews 4.15. This high priest of ours, Jesus, he understands our weaknesses because he has faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He was fully human. As a result, he faced the same temptations that we do. Like you and me, after 40 days alone in the desert, he was hungry and it was real. So the devil decides to make his first attack, his first temptation this. The devil said to him, verse three, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. It's said that where Jesus was in this particular area of the wilderness, you can still go to this day. And, and some of the rocks, they literally look like loaves of bread. So you imagine being Jesus. He hasn't eaten for days. And he's looking at a piece of, uh, a rock that looks like a piece of bread. All he sees is bread. It's no wonder that was the way that the devil chose to tempt him. But the truth is, in that moment, it was far more than just food. It was far more than just hunger. I believe in that moment, the evil one was challenging Jesus to prove that he was somebody by doing something significant. He was saying, Jesus, if you are the son of God, perform. If you're really somebody, then then prove it. Show me what you can do. Because really, that's what the performance lie is all about, isn't it? It's challenging us to prove ourselves. It's, it's taunting us with questions like, what have you really accomplished? Why would anyone listen to you? How, how have you demonstrated your value, your worth, your significance? The performance lie over and over, over again just echoes in our ears saying, you are what you do. 
I am what I do. And because we buy into that lie, we try to prove to ourselves over and over and over again that, that we can do, that we, we are capable so that somehow we'll find our value and our self-worth. But Jesus, who is our role model, when he was tempted to prove who he was, to show, to, to, to perform a miracle, listen to how he responds. Because I think the, the way he responds is a little clue to how we can understand the truth in this situation. Luke 4, 4 says, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. The devil was saying to him, you're hungry. And if you really want to, to change that, if you really are who you think you are, who you say you are, if you're really the son of God, do something, prove it. But Jesus said, no, because this is more than just about bread. And this is how Jesus was able to resist that performance lie. When we go back one chapter, right before this moment in the wilderness, we discover that Jesus was baptized. This is really important because before he did anything, he chose to, to be obedient, to get baptized. And uh, he went to the River Jordan. John the, baptized, John the Baptist uh, baptized him. And uh, something really unique, something very significant happened in that moment. We read about it in Luke 3, 21 and 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Father God, speaking to his son, says you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. Now remember, at this point, when Jesus heard this voice, he hasn't said one thing worth quoting yet. He hasn't performed a single miracle. He hasn't died on a cross to save mankind. He's done nothing of any significance at all. But he hears a voice from his heavenly Father saying, you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. And if you're a parent here this morning, you get that. Because there's just something about the way you love your child. That love you have the, that is far greater than anything they've ever done or anything they'll ever accomplish. You just love them. God's saying, you're my son. That's who you are. I love you. That's how I feel about you. That is your worth. That is your value. That is your identity. The fact that you are my son. Not anything that you've ever done or will ever do in the future. The love and affirmation of God the Father was not based on his performance. It comes before anything he does and it becomes the foundation of Jesus's identity. So when he's tempted then in the next chapter in the wilderness by the identity lie that you are what you do, he was able to stand up against it because his identity was already established. He was his father's dear son. He knew that he brought him great joy just because. I hope and pray that every one of you experiences that kind of unconditional love 
in your life. I don't know what your upbringing was like. I don't know what your home was like in which you grew up. But my prayer is that everyone would understand in a real physical sense, just in their own lives, what, what that kind of love looks like and feels like. My family is going through a very unique time right now, but it's, it's given us an opportunity to experience that kind of unconditional love. My father-in-law is a great man. He's a member of Connect. He was playing saxophone up here on the stage this morning. He's uh, just recently, um, he's battling some really serious health uh, situation in his life. And it's really, you know, kind of taken a toll on us as a family, you know, realizing what he's going through. But it's opened up some amazing things through this. His faith in God, I believe, is growing stronger. He's a great testament to all of us of how he's walking through this difficult time, this, this, how he's navigating this journey through his relationship with God. And one of the ways we've seen that is through a family group text that we're a part of. Now, my wife is one of six brothers and sisters. Between all of them, they have 30 children. So we are part of a group family text with 30 people on it. The only reason there's not more is because some of the youngest of the children haven't got cell phones yet. So there are 30, some of you are like, I've got three people on a group text and it's driving me nuts. You imagine a group text with 30 people. <laughs> but it's fantastic. Because one of the um, great uses at the moment of this group text is for my father-in-law on a regular basis to just send out a text to remind everyone in the family, his daughters, his sons, his grandchildren, his wife, just how much he appreciates them and loves them. I went back just over the last couple of weeks and pulled out three. I could have pulled out dozens, but I pulled out just three of his texts to share with you this morning. Good morning, family. May you all have a great day. Love you all. Good morning, Brewer family. What a great day to be a part of the Brewer family. Love you all. Have a great day. Be kind to someone. Good morning, fam. Have a blessed day. I still am loving you all. My prayer is that my kids and their cousins will grow up as a result of this to understand what it's like to be unconditionally loved. There's never a text that says, hey, I saw you won your game last night. I love you. Hey, you're doing really well at school. I love you. It's completely unconditional. I just love you because. What a great legacy for this wonderful father-in-law, grandfather to, to leave to his kids and grandkids, for them to see just that unconditional love in their lives. And, and as I was preparing for this message, for me, it came just a, a glimpse, just a, a small example of what that looks like on a much grander scale of how much God the Father loves every one of us. I hope you know this morning that you are a part of a massive group text. It's called the Bible. And every page, every day, there's another reminder that God loves you so much. And he wants you to hear that every single day. And the devil knows that. And he doesn't want you to hear that. He doesn't want you to believe that. So he lies. And he gets us to, to look away and say, no, your value, your worth, your identity, it's caught up in performance. You have to earn that love. You have to be good enough to earn that love. God says, no. It's the opposite that's true. I love you. You are my dear son. You've brought me great joy. 
that's where I want our identity to be rooted this morning. Because here's the thing, when you think about your identity, every one of us, we can find it in many different ways. I'll use me as an example. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend. But the danger is if I look to my identity as one of those aspects, I could find myself in trouble because that could then become my core identity. And here's what I mean. Imagine that my core identity was as a parent. The value, the, the, the largest part of my identity was as a parent. That I would be putting an unhealthy amount of pressure on my kids. Because I would want them to perform really well. Because for, for my kids to perform, that shows how well I'm doing as a parent. Because that's where I find my core identity. What if my core identity was as the pastor of this church? I would be putting a disproportionate amount of pressure on this church to be successful. Because my identity would be wrapped up in, in how successful the church is. Therefore, that's how successful I am as a person because that's where I find my identity. And that just isn't true. That's a lie from the devil. But the problem is like that, that silly radio program we talked about at the beginning, it just seems so real. Because it's what we hear every day in the world in which we live. It's what we see all around us, that, that pressure to perform. And Jesus is saying, no, let me tell you the truth. Let me explain where you can find your core identity. He talks about it in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. What that means is if you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you've made a decision to say, Jesus, I wanna follow you. I wanna follow you. I wanna put you first in my life. I, I tried to live my life with me in control and it just wasn't working out. I, I was making mistakes. I felt like there had to be more to this life than just this. And then I found you. And I found purpose and meaning and I understood the great sacrifice that you made on the cross for me and I was so grateful. And Jesus, I made that decision to follow you. In that moment, you became a child of God. It's nothing you earned. It isn't even something you deserve. We sang that at the beginning, that, that overwhelming love of God. It isn't earned, it isn't deserved. But through adoption, You've become a child of God. He's adopted you into his family. This means that our core identity is received and not achieved. Our core identity is received, not achieved. We, we can't work for it. There's nothing, we'll never be good enough. And God knew that. This is why he adopted us as children. Now, don't get me wrong. I still wanna be the best dad I can be. I'd love to be the best pastor of this church that I can be. I'd love to be the best husband that I can be. And I'm gonna try my hardest to do whatever I can in all those areas to grow in those areas. But I'm gonna make the choice not to find my core identity in any of them because I'll never be able to perform at a high enough level. So I'm choosing to find my core identity in who I am in God's eyes. So that when I hear that voice that says, what have you really accomplished? Why should anyone listen to you? You're really a joke. I'll recognize it as the lie that it is. 
because we are not what we do. We are dearly loved children of God who bring him great, great joy. There's a, an author and a pastor. He was actually a priest. He was a Catholic priest. His name was Brennan, Brennan Manning. And uh, I say his name was Brennan Manning. He passed away uh, a while back, but uh, he was an amazing communicator, an amazing author. And we're going to watch a little clip of him sharing some ideas here about the love of God in a second. But I want to kind of set it up because it's important that you understand who he was to bring value to what it is he's sharing. So Brennan Manning battled a lot in his life. He was an alcoholic, an addict. He found himself um, living on the streets, laying in shop doorways, people crossing over to avoid him. His life was just such a mess. He'd hit rock bottom in every sense of the word, and then he discovered Jesus. He discovered how much Jesus loves him. And, and he talks a lot in his books and his sermons about how God rescued him. And if there's any, ever anyone who fully understands the love of God, it's this man right here because he knows, like the prodigal son, how far he strayed away. And yet God's love still reached far enough to find him. So everywhere he went, he would teach and preach about the love of God because he said, hey, if God can love me, he can love all of you. If God can accept me and pour out his love and his grace and his mercy like I've experienced in my life, there isn't one of you here who can't experience it also. That's the kind of experience this man had with God's love. So with that in mind, listen to him talking about it here in this video. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? that I long to hear the sound of your voice. The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I try to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are gonna have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only gonna be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image. 
and man return the compliment? We often make God in our own image. He wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. I love that line he ends with there. I dare you to trust, God speaking, I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be. Here's why I think the devil uses this performance lie, because he knows that if we were just to grasp the depth of that truth, that God loves us just as we are, not as we should be. We'd, we wouldn't give in to this lie of feeling like, well, I've got to perform. I've got to perform to receive value from my friends, my family, the people around me. I've got to perform in front of God so that he will accept me because I know who I am. I know the mess my life is in, so I better work really hard here to make sure that I do enough for him to love me. But that's the lie that the devil wants you to believe. The truth is that God loves you just as you are and not as you should be. You are his child. So the next time you feel like a joke, the next time you're tempted to measure yourself by your performance, hear the voice of God speaking to you in exactly the same way that he spoke to Jesus, his own son, when he says to you, you are my dearly loved child, every one of you, and you bring me great, great joy. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And the truth is, Lord, that this is an easy lie to believe because it just seems so normal. We live in a world where everyone is based on their performance. And the truth is that as followers of Jesus, that is a lie. It's a lie that the devil wants us to believe that we have to perform well enough to be loved by you. Whereas in actual fact, it's the complete opposite. The truth is that you love us for who we are. And I believe the devil wants us to believe that lie because if for a moment we were to understand just how loved we are by you, if we were able to experience that love, it would transform our lives. Your love would flow through us into the lives of others. People would see you because we've experienced you as the great loving God that you are. And we would love others in the same way. So God, I pray that we would all aspire to be the best that we can be, the best husbands, wives, parents, employees we can be. That we would strive, Lord, to, to do well in our lives, but that we would never think that 
that's where our identity lies. I pray that every one of us would find our identity and our value and our worth in the truth that we are sons and daughters of God. And you love us and we bring you joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.